And Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go ye, serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be stayed. Let your little ones also go with you. And Moses said, Thou must give us also sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our cattle also shall go with us. There shall not be a hoof left behind. For therefore must we take to serve the Lord our God, and we know not with what we must serve the Lord until we come hither. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. And Pharaoh said to him, Get thee from me, take heed to thyself, see my face no more. For in that day that thou seest my face, thou shalt die. And Moses said, Thou hast spoken well, I will see thy face again no more. And the Lord said to Moses, Yet will I bring one plague more upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards, he will let you go hence. When he shall let you go, he shall surely thrust you out thence altogether. Speak now in the ears of the people. Let every man borrow of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor jewels of silver and jewels of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. And Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, About midnight will I go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon the throne, even unto the firstborn of the maid servant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of beasts. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it any more. But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against man or beast, that ye may know how the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And all these thy servants shall come down, come down unto me and bow themselves unto me, saying, Get thee out, and all the people that follow thee, and after what I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron did all these great wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the children of Israel go out of his land. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, this month shall be to you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, And the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for a lamb, let him and his neighbors next unto his house take it for according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out of the sheep from the goats, and you shall keep it unto the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door post of the houses wherein they shall eat it. 
and they shall eat the flesh of it in the night, roast with fire and unleavened bread with bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Eat not of it raw nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs and with putinance thereof. You shall let nothing of it remain to the morning, and that which remaineth of it unto the morning you will burn with fire. Thus shall you eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt will I execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial and you shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Now chapter 12, oh, we're chapter 12, now verse 29. And it came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, and the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne, unto the firstborn of the captain that was in the dungeon, the captive that was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. There was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. And he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said to them, Rise up and get you from among my people, both ye and your children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as ye have said, and be gone, and bless me also. And the Egyptians were urgent upon the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We be all dead men. And the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading troughs being bound up in their clothes upon their shoulders. And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses, and they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they lent unto them such things as they required, and they spoiled the Egyptians. And the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 on foot that were men beside children. And a mixed multitude went up also with them, and flocks and herds, even very much cattle. And they baked unleavened cakes of dough, which they had brought forth out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of the land of Egypt, and they could not tarry, neither had they prepared themselves any victuals. Now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the selfsame day it came to pass, that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night to be much observed to the Lord for the bringing them out from the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord to be observed of all the children of Israel in their generations. 
Let's pray. Bless us, I pray, dear Lord, in our gathering together before your holy word, even as we have read your Bible, and we depend upon the presence of your Holy Spirit to teach us, to guide us, to feed us, to satisfy us. As we've held in our hands your heavenly text, we pray that you'd give to us heavenly understanding. We admit that we are but earthly men and women, and in and of ourselves, though we may intellectually comprehend, we cannot spiritually understand without your mind. And we believe that the Holy Spirit, whom we submit to, will teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. And so, as we have considered here this biblical text of the planned Egypt, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I mentioned to you that the name Exodus is this concept of out of, or an exit, simply like that. In Exodus chapter number one, there's an explanation as to how the people got in the land. Just give you the big picture again. In chapter number three, God communicates to Moses from the burning bush and verse number 10 with his plan to bring the people out of Egypt. It is to serve God at the mountain where Moses currently is, Mount Sinai, but it will not be without the king of Egypt, the pharaoh of Egypt, refusing and God's opportunity in Exodus 3.20 to stretch his hand out on what would have been the most powerful nation the Hebrew people had ever seen, and God could show his wonders. That's Exodus 3.20. I will stretch my hand out, and I will smite Egypt with my wonders. I will give the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Exodus chapter number 3. In Exodus chapter number 5, just as God had told Moses, when Moses the deliverer goes to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's response in chapter 5 verse 2 is, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I know not the Lord. Did you get that little bit of a soundbite that came out a few weeks ago? One of the representatives in Congress but uh, somebody said, and I can't remember who it is, said something about the will of the Lord, and that representative was caught on, the, on a microphone. He said, the will of God has nothing to do with this Congress. Did you hear that? It was Representative Jerry Nadler. The will of God has nothing to do with this Congress. It was just a tiny little bite that came out. I don't know if it's a hot mic or if, or if he just expressed himself and knew it, but I, 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 this came to my mind. <laughs> Immediately in my mind, because I'd been reading Exodus so much, was the words of Pharaoh, who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice. That's not meant to, to condemn Representative Nadler, just I, I wouldn't want to go on record. Would you want to go on congressional record of saying that the will of God has nothing to do with this Congress? I would not want to go on, particularly when you have a commander-in-chief invoking God's blessings, and then to have a representative say the will of God has nothing to do with this Congress. But anyways, that doesn't affect your vote because you and I don't get the opportunity to vote for Jerry Nadler one way or the other. He's in another state. So, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? 
I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. That's Pharaoh's political position. It's also his theological position. His political position is, I'm not going to obey his voice. His theological position is, who is the Lord? I don't know the Lord. Well, we, we've read here that Pharaoh is going to get an introduction who the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is, right? To the point where he's going to confess he sinned, and he's going to say, ultimately, I know the Lord now. Get the people out of my land. Get the people out of the land. They can go. God's answer to who is the Lord is chapters number 5 through 12, where we read, where Moses denounces a series of 10 plagues. These 10 plagues all correspond to the mythological gods of the Egyptians. There were gods of the Nile and, and the fertility that the Nile brought to an agrarian society. The first plague, water changed to blood. The second plague, frogs. The third plague, lice. There was gods against their land, a land that they believed belonged to Pharaoh and their gods. There were swarms of flies. There was a disease upon the livestock. There was boils upon their skin that came from the dust. There was, a land, there was plagues against the gods of the sky. There was hail that fell along with fiery thunder. There were locusts that swarmed and devoured crops and infested their homes. There was a darkness, a plague of darkness upon the land for three days that caused the people to fear and moan. And then there was the plague against all the gods of Egypt, particularly the Pharaoh himself, for the plague, the tenth plague against the firstborn, was a plague that would inflict Pharaoh himself by taking the firstborn to Pharaoh's servants, such as a handmaid, to Pharaoh's livestock, to all the livestock in the land. And you notice when we read, even the captives in the jail. Even the captives in the jail. This tenth plague was the wrath of God upon the sin of humanity. It was a plague that was so thorough and filled with so much wrath that no one could escape from the Egyptian to the Hebrew except for those who would hide behind the mantle of a blood, the blood of a Passover lamb. We'll get to that in just a moment. And these plagues was God's answer to this political leader who had become a god in the eyes of of the Egyptians and himself. His question was, who is the Lord? I know not the Lord. Here's the answer. You know exactly who the Lord is. The I am. The I am, the existing one. He had been the Lord Almighty to them, and now he is the I am. And the response would be, get out of the land as the Lord has told you. Get out of my land and then they will go and they will serve the Lord at the mountain. And the pinnacle of serving the Lord at the mountain is Exodus chapter 20, where the Ten Commandments are given. And from Exodus chapter number 20 to Exodus chapter number 40, where the tabernacle is completed and God descends upon the tabernacle and the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. And there the Hebrew people are able to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as Moses is to lead them to the promised land. These ten plagues not only correspond to the gods of Egypt, but these ten plagues also correspond to the ten times where Pharaoh will harden his heart, which balances in perfect perspective to the ten times where God says to Moses, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. 
So add it up. The 10 plagues hang upon 20 remarkable statements where Pharaoh's heart is growing harder and harder, and God is not worried at all, for the plan is to show his wonders. And that was in the beginning here of our reading this morning, where I mentioned to you in Hebrew, uh, Exodus chapter number 10, verse number 24 again, Pharaoh calls to Moses, this is at the conclusion of the plague of darkness, Pharaoh calls to Moses and says, Go serve the Lord, taking you back to Exodus chapter number 10, verse number 24. Go serve the Lord. But notice that Pharaoh has a condition. Only let your flocks and your herds uh, be stayed. Your little ones uh, also go with you, but keep your flocks and your herds. Keep that in mind. Because Moses says, thou, thou must give us sacrifices, burnt offerings, cattle, verse 26, will go with us. We can't leave a hoof behind. We're all going to go. Of course, this is a, a herds keeping people. When they first came into the land, that was something between Jacob and Joseph and Pharaoh 430 years previous that they were a herds keeping people and their herds are their identity is within their herds. This is their entire identity. And they went to the live in the land of Goshen, which would have been in the Nile Delta region, and they had went to live in the land of Goshen so that they could graze their herds. And Pharaoh is no fool. He is a fool, but he's not a dummy, and he recognizes the significance of the herds being their identity. And so Pharaoh is finally, after this ninth plague of darkness, willing to concede something. He'll concede not just the men to go into the wilderness. He'll also concede the women. And he'll not just concede the women, but he'll also concede the children. The family unit can go, but not your herds. And their herds are part of their identity. So Pharaoh's not yet willing to let them completely go serve their God because Pharaoh's not yet completely willing to let them go. This comes at the end of this hardening, but not just their hardening, but a series of propositions uh, that began back here in chapter number 3 of Exodus. So let's go back and see this a little bit. But back in chapter number 3, In verse number 18. And they shall hearken to thy voice that thou shalt come out, thou, thou and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the heavens hath met with us. Now let us go, we beseech thee, three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. This is God's instruction to Moses that you're to go to Pharaoh and say to Pharaoh that the God of our fathers has ordered us to go a three-day journey into the wilderness and sacrifice, to have a feast. Uh, notice, it, I do find it rather intriguing, the word, we beseech thee, which is a kind entreaty, kindly we do request of you that you grant to us a three-day pass. 
we, our families, our identity to go into the wilderness and have a feast to our God. With the implication, we'll be returning. Now, what has, I've been thinking about this for weeks, actually. That they requested a three-day pass when that's not actually what they wanted. That's not actually what God intended all along, is it? The Exodus is this concept that God had remembered his covenant with Abraham, and their covenant was that they would not only be a people, an identified people group, but then they would also receive the inheritance, a title of a land, and the land was not Egypt. And so back here in chapter number two, that God had reminded, he had seen their toil, he had remembered his covenant, and in chapter three, he's calling Moses to enact this covenant, which in chapter 3, verse 8, to deliver them from the Egyptians, chapter 3, verse 8, to bring them out of the Egyptian land and to assign them to the land that I had shown Abraham, chapter 3, verse number 8. It's a land that the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So the mission of Moses is to fulfill this original vision that these people descended from Abraham would inhabit a land. But when God sends Moses to Pharaoh, he sends them with this initial request, give us three-day leave to go and hold a feast. So the question that I've been wrestling with is if God knew all along that the people are leaving the land not for three days, but indefinitely, because this has been a 430-year promise, then why did Moses go with a three-day request for leave? Why did Moses go with a three-day request to leave? Moses went with a three-day request to leave because this is God doing a work in the life of Pharaoh, and in the life of the Egyptians, to reveal their sinful disposition as to why they want to keep the Hebrews anyway. And frankly, God is not only keeping his promise to Abraham to bring his people out, but God is also standing as a just judge upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians, who ultimately are people that he has created who must give an account to him. This initial presentation that Moses makes sounds rather powerful to me, doesn't it? Give us the liberty to fulfill an obligation for a three-day religious holiday. It's a very small thing to ask. But as Pharaoh, who possesses quite a bit of power, does a risk assessment of the situation, he determines that the risks are too high, that the people would become idle from their obligation to build him bricks, that they might even become uh, rather... Uh, promis promiscuous in their desire to wander away, and it's too much risk to take, and therefore he's not willing to relent. He has no motivation to relent. His statement of fact is, who is the Lord? I know not the Lord, and I don't have a theology to support this idea anyways. So ultimately, what God is telling Moses to do is to approach Pharaoh with, an, with it, uh, terms that will demonstrate Pharaoh's ruthless heart in this whole thing. And Pharaoh's ruthless heart is such that he hardens himself to the request even for three days. This three days comes up over and over again throughout. 
And the terms that are presented initially is we will go, the men, the women, the children, and the flocks. We will go. Initially, Pharaoh won't hear anything of it. But after three plagues, now Pharaoh is willing to entertain it, and at first he entertains it with the men. The men can go, but leave the women, leave the children, leave the flocks. Plagues come and judgment comes, and initially Pharaoh hardens himself, and then Pharaoh softens under the the advice of his counselors, to which then Pharaoh's willing to let the men and the women go, but keep the flocks. And each time that God pressures and judges the Egyptians, initially it's all the Egyptians refusing, then it's Pharaoh and his counselors refusing, then it's Pharaoh alone, and the counselors saying, Pharaoh, we ought to let them go, and the Egyptians saying, they've got to go. Until finally, it's just Pharaoh and God. And this is where I brought you in the reading, that finally it's just Pharaoh and God. Because Pharaoh himself is hailed as a God in the land. Pharaoh himself is seen as a deity in their theology. It's a mighty deity. And so that Pharaoh says, well, you and your people can go, but not your flocks. And then verse 27 of chapter 10, where I had already read, but just see it for just a moment. The Lord Pharaoh's hardens Pharaoh's heart. And what's the purpose? Because God had said all along in chapter number three that he would smite the Egyptians and show his wonders. I had taken that as quite a bit of theme last week to go then to Romans chapter nine to talk about both the difficult balance to understand the sovereign will of God and how God gives free agency and free will to humanity. And these two things coexist and commingle in a mystery that I can't comprehend that Paul uses Pharaoh as the example to say that God is doing a sovereign work to which ultimately he knows the full end of what he's doing but will be glorified through the redemption of humanity and the judgment of humanity that God will be glorified through the redemption of humanity and the judgment of humanity. It's a mystery to me of how God will be glorified, but I'll take it by faith and go, oh, the wonders of God. Who can search his great wisdom? So that those who are in heaven singing to the re- of the redemption of God, that's a glory to God. And as hard as it is for me to understand as a human being from my perspective, at those who groan in hell, groan to the glory of God. That's the counsel of God's word, and that's the glory of God, and that's the mystery of God. And it really doesn't need to shatter me that some great political leader will say, the will of God has nothing to do with this Congress. That sounds like the voice of hell. The will of God has nothing to do with the sovereignty of my life. Who is the Lord? In a day when we see our nation ever, ever descending into secularism, with that attitude, if we don't accept it, we don't know this God, and it doesn't make any sense to us, and we'll have the final word about us, the reality is, is God is their creator, and he'll have the final word, and he'll be glorified even in the destruction of the unbeliever. Now, that grieves me. 
Don't think it doesn't grieve God. It grieves God on the, Cal on the cross of Calvary because there is the Son of God suffering to bring redemption to humanity, and yet some humanity insists on rejecting the offer of redemption. Perfect justice mingled with perfect grace. Only God can mingle justice and grace so perfectly. Only God can show wrath and mercy in such a way that leaves us dumbfounded. And that's where the apostle was in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, where I referenced Romans 9, but it's really a package. It's Romans 9, 10, 11. He just says, oh, the wonders of God. How incredible is God? And even in that, Romans chapter 9, verse number 1 through 3, Paul began by saying, I'm broken for my people Israel. He was broken over the unbelieving Jewish people who wouldn't embrace the concept that Jesus was the Christ. He was broken over that topic. And he concedes in, in Romans chapter 10 that they're blinded in heart. They're attempting to be righteous according to their own standard, and they've missed the righteousness of God through Christ. And then he goes into Romans chapter 11 saying, but where could the Gentile boast? They're the wild olive branch that's been grafted in by grace. And then he ends with Romans chapter 11 saying, oh, the incredible wonders of God. Only God could mingle perfect wrath, perfect mercy and grace in such a way that we would be dumbfounded by it. And we are. When I read about these plagues and how this man, Pharaoh, stood against God and brought destruction to his, to his land. And the implications there is that the, the land of Egypt was ruined. The land of Egypt was ruined, which would mean not just Pharaoh's might and pride, but, but what about those who were incarcerated in Pharaoh's jail who fell down dead that night? They didn't know there was a, there was a dispute between Pharaoh and God that Moses settled with the death of the firstborn, but they fell down dead anyway, those that were in jail. When we think about how God is offering salvation and redemption through Christ, every time we think about it, we really can go, this is an amazing grace. And the opportunity to know that amazing grace is a wonderful thing. Hebrews 3.15 3, reminds us today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart as in the provocation. And even when that, my, that verse came to my mind, Hebrews 3.15, today, if you'll hear his voice, comes to my mind often. Because I think about it once in a while when I'm talking to somebody about Jesus and they say, oh, some more convenient day maybe. I think to myself, how do we know there'll be a more convenient day? How do we know there'll be another day? Don't pressure me. It's not my pressure to put upon you, but we just don't know, do we? So I think about that verse 315 and I was thinking about it. I would like to apply it to the, to the message this week. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart as in the provocation. And then it occurred to me when I read it in its context that it's actually talking about the Hebrew people during their wilderness wandering. That God, through Moses, told the Hebrew people, if you harden your heart, you'll fall down dead in the wilderness. Well, wait a minute, these are the same people he delivered from the Egyptian bondage when God told Pharaoh, if you don't let the people go, you're going to fall down dead. Oh, the justice of God. How thorough it is. 
But then beyond Pharaoh and, and beyond the reality that God was going to use Pharaoh to display his glory and his wonders. And God would bring justice upon Pharaoh and the justice would be so severe that the, Egypt, the land of Egypt would suffer. Is this 10th plague. And this 10th plague, I know you're familiar with this story. Even if you're not a Bible reader and you're just a film collector, you had to see the Ten Commandments with Yul Brenner and Charles Heston, I mean, two of your favorite classic actors, right? And what a contest they displayed. I remember as a child watching that, that classic film, and it just scared me when that tenth plague came. I didn't understand the blood or the red, okay, that's blood, but I sure understood to be scared when that green fog come running through that Egyptian town that night, and people started screaming and just falling in the fog. Remember those scenes? That was powerful. I remember it. And that imagery there that God's justice moves throughout the land of Egypt and the only mercy was behind the doorway of where the blood was. This was according to God's design as he told Moses here in chapter number 12 that this was to be the first of their religious festivals in the Hebrew calendar. This first of the religious festivals to which they would take a lamb of the first year, specifically chosen according to its quality, its beauty, and this lamb would be slain, the blood collected, and applied uh, to the exterior of the house. Then that lamb specifically was to be prepared in fire. You saw how detailed the instructions were as I was reading it. And the inhabitants of the house that night was to eat the lamb with nothing remaining. Anything remained needed to be consumed in the coals. They were to eat bitter herbs that night, not something that would be sweet and satisfying normally to the palate. And they were to eat the bread, their grain, with a, with, mixed with water into a dough, which is very common. They were to eat their bread that night unleavened. Leavened or yeast is that living organism that's put within our dough to make it rise. And the implication here is that there wasn't time to let this rise. This first festival, their first religious festival that they were to keep indefinitely within their culture was to kick off the second festival called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would be they would remember to eat their bread beyond this night for seven days. This was so significant that if anybody within their culture was found eating, you know, Wonder Bread? Who doesn't love Wonder Bread? If anybody was found to be eaten uh, that light and fluffy bread any time within the seven days, they were to be excluded from the festival. They were to be ceremoniously marked as uh, defying this festival. Uh, the reason is, is this lack of Risen bread would symbolize the haste by which they fled the wrath of God in the land of Egypt. They were in a hurry to obey God and observe this festival. There was, there was no need to barter anymore. There was, there was no need to make special concessions. There, this sense of change in the land of Egypt this night was so intense that no one needed to explain to an observer what was going on. The transformation was that incredible. I mean, on one day, they got up 
And the Hebrew people were enslaved to a definite despot who was so powerful that hail and locusts and, and boils and phenomenon with water and air and bugs, that, that their bondage was so incredible that they woke up on one morning slaves. And then that night in darkness, something happened so unique to the land that they woke up the next day freemen. That's how stark this transformation was. And this festival of the Passover lamb with the blood and the seven days of eating unleavened bread, that this thing would commemorate forever from one generation to the other, marked yearly at this month of their calendar, remind them that God's justice was so severe and his mercy was so plentiful that it forever rearranged the world. We're hearing, you know, in the media that the pandemic and the coronavirus has forever changed the world. It has changed perhaps your world and my world, but come on, we're human beings. How many times do we relearn the same things over and over again? They called it World War I because there wasn't supposed to be a World War II, you know. And now we're hearing talk about a buildup on the Ukrainian border with Russia, and uh, troops are amassing, and, uh, uh, and allies are aligning, and a World War III? I thought we were supposed to only have one great world, world war. Here's my point. We, we really don't learn very well from history and humanity, do we? But when God gets somebody's attention and transforms them from slavery to freedom, that transformation is so incredible that it is marked by a different human being. And in the New Testament, it's called a new birth. When Nicodemus questioned Jesus in John chapter number three about Jesus's wonders, remember that? John chapter three in the, in the cover of darkness, Nicodemus said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know you've, you're a teacher from God because no one can do the wonders unless God the miracles that you're doing, except God be with him. And Jesus's message, spiritual message for Nicodemus that night was that he and all humanity needed from him the freedom to experience a birth from above, a new birth, a born again. And this is explained throughout the New Testament of a new creation where the fallen individual members of the race of Adam are able to experience a freedom from their sin being judged, the welcoming life of the Holy Spirit, and then becoming spiritually a new creation, a new creature, creature, a transformation of this individual, a redemption that's occurring, that's setting us free from darkness to light, from death to life, from slavery to Pharaoh and the taskmasters to serving the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and worshiping at the mountain. All this imagery of the Old Testament was not only historical for the Hebrew people, but it is also a foreshadow of what God wants to do in all humanity. So this Passover celebration now to be commemorated in chapter 12. Take the blood, verse 7, and then eat the flesh and roast whatever left. Eat it with bitter herbs and an unleavened bread. And verse 10 of chapter 12 let nothing remain until verse 11. Eat it with your loins girded, 
your shoes on your feet and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. Eat it in haste. See the urgency of this night. Today, Hebrews 3.15. And verse 3.13, when I see the blood, I will pass over you and not destroy you. And what's the results of it? Where I had read in chapter number 12 and verse number 29 that when they awaken and the this judgment is so severe upon the land of Egypt that then Pharaoh's words in verse number 31, rise, go forth from among my people, you and the children of Israel, serve the Lord as you have said, take your flocks, your herds as you have said, be gone and bless me. And the Egyptians with urgency where they say, we, we be all dead men. And so with their unleavened bread, their kneading troughs, with the spoil that the Egyptians had given to them to take, they go forth into the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And this yearly holiday that our Jewish friends keep, and uh, if you ever make a Jewish friend and you feel intimate enough with them, close enough with them, ask them if you could participate in the Passover with them. They invite people to join Passovers with them. It was actually instructed, if there's a stranger in your house behind the door, then have them eat the Passover with you. This is something that, that they're welcome to do. It's, it's a feast that we respect and appreciate. We do little seders in our churches also, where we remember what this means to the Jewish people because we know what this meant to our Jewish Messiah, Jesus. Yeshua is his Hebrew name. And then we know what that means to us as followers of this Jewish Messiah. Hebrew, uh, Luke chapter number 22 is where we see Jesus in the New Testament. Luke chapter number 22, we see Jesus in the New Testament. For Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, adopted into the descendancy of Joseph, his stepfather, as a Hebrew man, kept the feasts of Israel. Jesus kept kosher. He kept the laws perfectly. But more than just keeping the laws, he fulfilled the will of God perfectly in his heart. And that's all through the life of Jesus. We've mentioned that over and over again. But here on his last night, okay, this is Jesus' last night in his earthly ministry. Luke chapter 22, verse 14. When the hour was come, he sat down with his 12 apostles with him, and he said to them, With desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So here's Jesus with his 12 apostles. He would have had, as originally prescribed, a lamb that had been sacrificed earlier at the temple and his blood applied in the temple. And the lamb now roasted and the meat of the lamb brought to be consumed. He would have had bitter herbs. He would have had bread with no yeast, no leaven. And with his 12 apostles, they would have sat down and they would have did it within their order. They would have read the scriptures. They would have said their prayers. They would have sang their psalms. They would have remembered the significance of the night. One of the instructions back there that we didn't read is uh, the youth were to say to the elders, why is this night any different than any other night? Why is this night any different than any other night? Because this is the night we commemorate how God set us free from bondage, from, <coughs> excuse me, from slavery, how he redeemed us from the death that all the land of Egypt suffered. This is how we remember this. So the children 
would say to the elders, and the elders would instruct the children. <coughs> By the way, it's a good opportunity for me to just say that one of the greatest privileges that we are having is seeing the wee little ones in this building, aren't we? And seeing them sing. Currently, they're being instructed right now as children according to their age-appropriate level, which includes a shorter time than my long-winded sermons. They get some game time and some snack time, and some of you are going, oh, we could use a snack time, I know. But it is so important to me to see these children in this room with us. I don't know about you, but I find it very personally satisfying to see them sing the hymns. And I find it very rewarding internally. This is personally. I find it very rewarding internally to see adults holding hymn books for the little ones to see them. And for me, part of my mission is to stand up here and sing with enthusiasm because these little eyes are on me the whole time. They're watching me. How often do they see men sing who are sober? Our pastor's a Baptist. Surely they use the unfermented wine, don't they? How often do they see men sing who are sober? How often do they see men sing about good, redeemable things, particularly the glory of God and the person of Christ? So, men, if you're not singing, I just want to, I, this is just personally, sing for these children. If you can't sing for God, sing for the children that are next to you. Let them see your faith comes out in, in the singing. There's all kinds of ways we're teaching these kids. And I think singing, I love the hymns. This is a personal thing. The second thing is the hymns are easier for us to do. We, you can tell we need to do what we can do. But the third thing is, is I just can't find things that have such theology. I know they're old and antiquated by their, their melody and the pitch is high and it doesn't match what you're listening to on the river. But it holds hundreds of years of theology that's unmistakable. There's a learning curve to the vocabulary, and there's a learning curve to the metric. But once you get past that, by the way, I'm finding younger churches going, some younger churches are starting to go back to the hymns. Do you know why? Because their parents sang all the new contemporary stuff, and the kids are coming up going, we need something richer. They're going back to the hymns. No kidding. I am not kidding. I remember a number of years ago, I was at Cedar Real University in a conference it was a breakout session where the head of their music department and someone said, how do I take my church from hymns to contemporary music? And the head at that time of their worship department, Cedarville, he laughed and he said, funny you would say that at your age because he was in his 60s. He said, I got to tell you, your children are calling me up asking, how do we take it from contemporary music back to hymns? I thought I'll just stay with it because I like it anyway. Nothing wrong with modern music. That's not the point. We just want music that lifts us from earth to heaven with deep, deep meaning because we want our children to learn these things. These songs are teaching children good theology. So here we are with Jesus, like keeping this holiday with his 12 as they had been taught to do from youth. But notice how Jesus then, he takes this holiday and he brings it into our faith and he makes this personal by saying, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover for I say, before I suffer, for I say to you, I will not any more eat thereof till it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He takes the cup, he takes the bread, and then he says in verse 19, The bread is my body given for you, and the cup 
represents my blood shed for you. Do you see now the imagery? That right from the Passover, the Hebrew Passover, Jesus says to his followers, who were initially Hebrew, all the early followers of Jesus were Jewish. It wasn't until later that Gentiles were invited to participate. But Jesus says to his Hebrew followers, this ancient festival that we have kept for some 1,500 years at that point, this ancient festival that commemorated the destruction of Egypt and our salvation through the death of a, of a lamb and the judgment of God now represents me, the Messiah, the gift of God to Israel, sacrificed to absorb the wrath of God upon the cross for the salvation, for the relief of humanity from sin. So when we eat that bread and we drink that cup, what are we demonstrating? We are demonstrating the hastily deliverance of human beings, men and women, from the wrath of God. And just so that you realize that this really does belong to us today, 1 Corinthians chapter number 5, 1 Corinthians chapter number 5, Paul even invokes it in 1 Corinthians chapter number 5, in verse number 7. Purge out therefore the old leaven that you may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. For notice verse 7, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of, a, of sincerity and truth. So he uses, Paul says, remember the significance of the Passover, the lamb, the bread, the cup. Let this permeate your Christian life and remember that Christ is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb and that unleavened bread of haste was in haste because God was judging the sin of Pharaoh and he was pouring his wrath out on Egypt. Remember, God judged Christ for our sin and poured his wrath out on Christ. Therefore, we are the ones who will keep this feast with unleavened bread. Contextually, therefore, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he not only draws upon the history of how God delivered the Hebrew people while judging the Egyptians and then pulls it to the historical event of Jesus Christ dying on the cross and rising again, but then uses it as the motivation to the believer to walk away from the choice of sins and to let Christ be holy in you. Why? Because sin was like a taskmaster. It, hells, it holds you in bondage. And so he will say in chapters number 5 and chapters number 6 that fornication, covetousness, idolatry, drunkenness, uh, violence, thievery, extortion, lying. He goes on later in chapter number 6, that's in chapter 5, but in chapter number 6 he goes even further when he talks about idolatry and adulterer and homosexuality. Uh, he talks about, again, he mentions thieves and covetous and drunkards and revilers and extortioners. All of this, he says in verse number uh, chapters 5 through 6.10 are those who are stuck in Egypt under the plagues. The taskmasters hold you there and judgment is coming. But Christ, the Passover lamb, 
has set you free. And therefore, you are, chapter 6, verse number 19, the temple of God at the mountain. And verse 20, bought with a price, and you can be for the glory of God and the life of the Holy Spirit. In spite of the fact, chapter 6, verse 11, that we were in bondage. Such were some of you, but you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Do you know in this room is a collection of people from different backgrounds who were all enslaved, enslaved under a pharaoh by the name of the devil with chains of sin, taskmasters grueling to us, but through Christ the Passover lamb, as the wrath of God is pouring out on humanity, in this room is a representation of those who've been set free through Christ, transformed as those who are living temples of God where the Holy Spirit's dwelling in us. Isn't that wonderful? This Old Testament is not a book of old stories. It is a book of foreshadowing. Historically, what God did through Israel, that experientially, what he's doing through me, a Gentile. I love that. That's wonderful. So, we are free. And if we are free from that Egyptian bondage, then Christian friends, let Jesus Christ live in you to this freeness. For this is the last thing I'd like to say to you on this note, Romans chapter 6. You're going to need Romans chapter 6. Because in Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says that before Christ, we were dead in sin. Then, through our experience with coming to know Christ as Savior, we enter the death of Christ. And baptism symbolizes the resurrection of Christ so that we are new creations. We are new people. And we are therefore no longer slaves to sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 15. What then shall we sin because we are under the law, but under grace, God forbid? Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants, here's this key, slave, servant, to obey his servants you are to whom you obey, whether sin to death, that's Egypt, or obedience to righteousness. This is being there at the tabernacle, being the temple of God. But thank be to God that you were the servants of sin. That is, there you are, slaves in Egypt, but you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. That's the gospel. That's Christ being our Passover lamb. That's you and I receiving Christ as a Passover lamb in salvation. Verse 18, being made free from sin, you've become the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh, for as you have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness, to iniquity, to iniquity, so now yield your members' servants to righteousness, to holiness. Very wordy, very theological, very worth time, just not today. Verse 20, you were the servants of sin, and you were free from righteousness. What fruit had you in those things whereof now you're ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin, you become servants of God, and a fruit to holiness, the end of its everlasting life. I, I just love this. I'm not saying that to sound spiritual to you. I'm just saying that even as I read this, I'm reflecting upon a conversation I had with some uh, friends this week in the world. The conversation went like this. Where's your church? It's on Westfall. 
Remind me where Westfall is. Well, you know, Westfall, it's kind of like one of those oddball streets. I said, I said, do you know where the stop 40 is? <laughs> I come to love that question. I love that question because I watch people's faces. I'm a pastor, and I say to them, do you know where the stop 40 is? And they go, uh, well, I said, look, I'm using it as a landmark. It's one of the oldest bars in the city of Whitehall. It's Route 40. It's Stop 40. I said, look, my uncle managed that when I was a wee little tyke, and some of my earliest memories are Stop 40, okay? So you're talking to somebody who knows where the Stop 40 is. I said, do you know where the Stop 40 is? They said, yes. I said, my church is a block away. I've been in competition with them for 28 years. Because for 28 years, I roll by the stop 40 on a Sunday morning, and I count the number of cars. And then I come to Westfall, and I count the number of cars. <laughs> I've got the solution. We've got the cure. We've got, we got the potion. It's Christ. If it wasn't for Jesus, I wouldn't be here this morning. If it wasn't for Jesus, I wouldn't be married to that beautiful woman over there with these incredible family members. If it wasn't for Jesus, well, yeah. I'd be a servant of sin. And the end of it is death. The end of it is death. But I see a Passover lamb in Jesus. Amen? I'm not a better person. And these, these dear friends I was talking to, I love them. And they, then they talked about how they were going to do a lot of drinking this weekend. I know they would invite me, except that I would be a wet blanket. I just, you know, that's okay. I told my wife about that story later on. She says, it's funny you would tell that story, she said, because a family member of mine had said to me, Rhonda, knowing you were down in that church when I had been up in that bar, just irritated, it just convicted me so much. I said, did you ever say anything to your family member? She said, I didn't even know she was there. <laughs> But just knowing, boy, this is the work of God. And by the way, that precious family member has got right with the Lord and says, I'm so glad to be free from that place. This is what God is doing in our lives. He is setting us free from bondage. Now, maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. And I'm, I'm talking to people who've been a Christian for a long time. A number of you. Some of you may be fresher, newer. God bless you. Don't feel you're not a new person. You've got seniority. We're all equal in Christ. But some of you, you've been Christians maybe for decades, and that's a long time ago. But don't forget about it. Don't forget about what God did, because Romans chapter 6 says, if you yield back to, to sin, it will enslave you once again. So stay voluntarily yielded to the Holy Spirit, where then you have the fruit of righteousness and life. We really do have choices, amen? We have choices every day. We're not slaves. Well, I've gone on as much as I should. Would you bow your head with me?